Well, I'd invite you to join me in Philippians chapter 4. We are continuing to work our way through this brief letter written by the Apostle Paul uh, that really focuses on this theme of joy. Uh, Certainly that theme, when we launched this series, uh, struck a chord because so often we don't experience joy. Or we don't always know how to cultivate a spirit of joy, right? This, is a, this can be a struggle point for us. We've reflected on the challenges and struggles of life, even this morning, in very real ways. Certainly, as a culture, uh, we have found joy to be elusive. A culture that has so much, an affluent culture, And yet a culture that is marked by depression and anxiety and high rates of suicide. Wilfred McClay, professor of history at Hillsdale College, touched on just one aspect of this elusive pursuit in an essay entitled The Strange Persistence of Guilt. He reflects on how Nietzsche and Freud and a lot of the philosophers uh, have tried to throw off moral restraint, the straitjacket of religion. They have tried to usher in a new wave of atheism, freeing us from the constraints of God and His standards. And yet, as Maclay notes in the article, the culture has found guilt a difficult thing to shake. He writes, the stupendous achievements of the West in improving the material condition of human life and extending the blessings of liberty and dignity to more and more people are in danger of being countervailed and even negated by a growing burden of guilt that poisons our social relations and hinders our efforts to live happy and harmonious lives. So for all the improvements in culture and in society, all of the civilization that has taken place, all of the... the, the perks and accomplishments and treatments for cancer and other physical ailments, lying beneath it all is still this nagging and even growing problem of guilt. Freud himself commented on this in his book, Civilization and Its Discontents. Freud said that the most important problem in the development of civilization is the tenacious sense of guilt. (laughs) Indeed, he observed, and I quote, the price we pay for our advance in civilization is a loss of happiness through the heightening of the sense of guilt. This is the issue. This is what they were trying to get rid of. (laughs) And they couldn't get rid of it. The pursuit of joy, certainly found elusive by the culture, And even for us in the church, those who have a great hope in Christ can sometimes struggle to experience joy. Paul, again, has spoken about this theme repeatedly. He speaks of his own joy, chapter 1, verse 4, chapter 4, verse 1, chapter 4, verse 10. He expressed a determination to rejoice. He makes strong statements, I will rejoice, (laughs) Throughout the letter, he invites these believers to share in his joy. And then, in a couple of occasions, he actually commands these believers strongly 
to rejoice. And here again in chapter 4, beginning in verse 4, we have really the most overt treatment of this theme of joy. We really get a sense of the inner workings of how this joy uh, is, is cultivated and fostered in the life of the Christian. So I want to look at uh, five different aspects of joy that Paul develops here. Again, as he works through the inner workings of joy here in verses 4 through 7. Uh, the first is the call to joy. The call to joy. If I were to summarize it, determine to be joyful based on all that you have in Christ. Paul extends a call to them. He actually already commanded them in chapter 3, verse 1, to rejoice, but now he commands them again two more times. We're getting a sense of Paul's emphasis here, how strongly he feels about this. So chapter 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice Once again, joy is a command. It is something that we can control, that we can choose, that we must choose. It will not happen automatically. It is a discipline that needs to be cultivated. In some sense, Paul is saying that you and I are responsible for our attitude and for our worldview. Proverbs 16.32 talks a little bit about uh, the difficulty of controlling one's spirit. It's like, a, uh, like conquering a, an armed city. It's tough work. But one of the things that the Spirit brings about in our lives, if we're a follower of Christ, is self-control. So we are given the responsibility to take control of our attitudes. You cannot simply say that you are a glass-half-empty kind of person which I would be prone to identify myself as a bit of an Eeyore at times, right? I'm a glass half-empty kind of person. That's a (laughs) cop-out. You and I are the kinds of people that we choose to be. So Paul is commanding them to rejoice, which means it's possible for them to do it. And they're responsible to do it. So the call to joy, it's a strong call. Paul says rejoice always. Again, making it clear that the type of joy he has in mind is not contingent on circumstances. Paul's the poster child for this, right? He's in prison. He's awaiting his execution. And yet he speaks of his joy. And he calls these people who were also experiencing persecution and hardship because of their faith. He calls them to joy. He commands them to joy. Might be why Paul reiterates it twice here. Maybe he anticipated pushback. And he says, essentially, don't try to weasel your way out of this command. Don't think that joy is impossible because of your situation. It's not. Don't think that you have too much baggage to be able to experience a life of joy. Rejoice in the Lord always, in every circumstance. And again, I tell you, rejoice, right? You feel it? The weight of this command? It's possible. (laughs) Regardless of what you bring to the table today, it's possible for you to experience 
joy in the Lord. And of course, that's specifically what Paul has in mind. He urges them to rejoice in the Lord. So we don't take some morbid delight in our difficult circumstances, right? We're not rejoicing when bad things happen to me. Oh, yippee, I'm so glad. (laughs) We're rejoicing in the Lord. In other words, in spite of what's going on in our circumstances, we cling to and we find our confidence and our hope and our joy in the Lord in, in terms of what we have in Christ. We've been redeemed from slavery to sin. We were slaves to sin. We had no choice but to sin until God rescued us out of slavery. Our sins have been forgiven. If you've come to faith in Christ, if you've come to recognize your sin and and turned in Him in humble faith with your hands upturned, to receive forgiveness from his hand. We, we, we've, ex- we've received the forgiveness of sins. We've been brought into uh, a reconciled relationship with the God who made us. We've been made alive when before we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Uh, we have an advocate in Christ, an advocate at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, a compassionate advocate, right, who was tempted in every way just like we are. And our future is secure. We celebrated the resurrection last week. And we talked about how Christ is the first fruits of a coming resurrection of the dead. That his resurrection ensures our resurrection. And we have all of this. In spite of the brokenness of our lives, we have the unthinkable blessings that have come to us through Christ. And Paul urges them to to reflect and remember and rehearse those blessings. God established, if you go back to the Old Testament, God's work with the Jewish people, God established a series of feasts, uh, three specific feasts that you actually had to travel. They're week-long feasts, and you had to travel to Jerusalem. Uh, They're called pilgrimage feasts. And so... uh, you know, I, I, we were just in Jerusalem, we were just in Israel with a group from church, and, and Boaz, our guide, was trying to capture that for us a little bit, that for some, this could be two to three months of travel, uh, not only the time you would spend in Jerusalem, but your time in, in getting there and getting home. You know, you didn't just catch a flight, you know, you're walking, you're hiking, uh, small children, uh, the elderly, this was a huge commitment to celebrate. These were feasts. These were joyful events, and God made it a priority that his people would be marked by joy and celebration. It seems a bit strange to us that we have to be commanded to rejoice, but we do. As the hymn says, our hearts are prone to wander. We're prone to think about all of the the challenges in our lives, the brokenness in our lives, and we're prone to forget God's extravagant grace. And so just as God established these feasts for the Jewish people and commanded them to rejoice, so Paul says, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. Continue to rehearse his goodness and his grace. So we have this very clear clarion call to joy. And then Paul describes here the impact of joy in verse 5. 
the impact of joy. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Here it is. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. If I were to summarize this, this, this aspect here, it's that we, we must recognize that joy is a critical aspect of our witness in the world. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. That's a curious little, little phrase, isn't it? Let your reasonableness be known. Every other time this word is used in the Bible, it's translated gentleness. So that would be certainly one way to bring it across. Let your gentleness be known to all. Uh, one translation brings it across, uh, see that you are considerate to all. Uh, it describes a calm, patient, forbearing, non-retaliatory type of spirit. Matter of fact, if we look in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 3, where Paul is describing the qualifications for church leadership, he says that they are to be, these individuals are to be gentle, not quarrelsome. So there's the contrast right there. Not argumentative, not embittered. Uh, There ought to be a a calmness and a, a gentleness, a graciousness that characterizes our spirit and our countenance. I think really Paul is essentially reiterating the call to joy in a slightly different way. The the internal quality of joy is manifested by the external quality of gentleness. Be joyful and let everyone see it in your countenance. Don't be a jerk. Don't freak out. As my Kentucky friend always says, don't be ugly now. Right? Don't don't be one who gets worked up or unsettled or embittered. Paul's addressing here the issue of the Christian's reputation. Become known as a joyful person and not a toxic person. Why? Because the Lord is near. This expression has a couple of possible meanings that Jesus is near in terms of chronology. Uh, In other words, his return is near. He's coming back. The threat of persecution will soon be exchanged for the honor of participating in Christ's victory. There will be a great reversal that is to come. Just stick with it, right? Hold tight. So it could mean that Jesus is near in terms of chronology. It could also mean that Jesus is near in terms of proximity. He is present. Jesus has promised to his disciples that he would be with us to the end of the age, Matthew 28. John sees this wonderful picture in John chapter 1 of Jesus walking among the lampstands. And again, at, at the time, these lampstands would be oil lamps, right? So you have to uh, uh, fill the oil to keep them lit. And, and this is the, the imagery. Jesus is walking among the lampstands, tending the lamps, making sure that they can continue to shine brightly. And of course, uh, John's very overt that the lampstands are the churches. Jesus is walking among the churches, He's making sure that they have all that they need to shine brightly. <laughs> right? A wonderful image. So, so we have 
so many reasons to, to understand that Jesus is present with us. He is near. The Lord is near. Regardless of how we understand the nuance here, the point is that we are to live with confidence and calmness, not fear, because of the Lord's presence. I think we have something similar here in Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter writes, It is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. So it pleases God. This is what Peter's saying. It pleases God when we endure suffering because we are conscious of God. We're, we're trusting God in the midst of this really difficult circumstance. That, that, that is, that's commendable that we, we keep God in mind in the midst of our struggles. He goes on here to use Jesus as the example. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. So this is the pattern of Christ, right? He received all sorts of mistreatment, unthinkable mistreatment, as he went to the cross, the crown of thorns, the spitting, the ridicule, uh, the, the uh, harsh statements that were directed towards him, the flogging, right? And, and, and he did not retaliate. Could he have retaliated? Yes, right? I'll answer the question for you. He could have retaliated, but he did not. And instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He, he entrusted himself to God, that God would make it right in his time. And this is what Peter is calling us to. This is what Paul is calling us to here in Philippians. To not have an angry spirit of retaliation and vengeance, but to entrust ourselves to the Lord. When our kids were growing up, we would often express concern over various things, right? Where is your sweatshirt? Did you leave it at school today? Is your homework done? Did you say thankful when they br- thank you when they brought you home from the birthday party today? You know, so these are the things that concern us as parents, right? Wanting to make sure our kids uh, are learning and growing in these different areas. Uh, Johnny always got us laughing. We tried not to laugh as parents, but we usually would end up laughing anyways. Johnny would say, "Don't panic." This was his this was his common refrain. Don't don't panic. I have my sweatshirt, right? As a matter of fact, it got to the point where Johnny would bring a topic of conversation to us, and he'd say, now, now, don't panic. But I left my sweatshirt at school, you know. So uh, he, he, he had that little, that, little, that little phrase kind of bringing us down a little bit. Uh, there's an interesting account of this in the realm of professional sports. Uh, the Green Bay Packers in 2014, got off to a really bad start. They lost two of their first three games, and there were high expectations for this team. Uh, They were supposed to compete for the Super Bowl, and uh, one of those bad losses was to the lowly Detroit Lions. 
So here's Aaron Rodgers at the press conference, and he issued a classic line, R-E-L-A-X. Relax. It's going to be okay. (laughs) And they went on to finish the year with the best record in the league, tied for the best record in the league. He was right. Just relax. So I say to you, my friends, relax. Don't panic. Sin should grieve us. And there's a lot to be grieved over, isn't there? As we look at the landscape of our culture, but it should not unsettle us. God has this. The resurrected and ascended Christ is present and sovereign over world events. Act like it. Your countenance reflects your theology. And it is an important part of our witness. We live in an increasingly skeptical culture. It's important that we speak the truth of the gospel without apology. But it is also important that we demonstrate the joy of the gospel. We should have a reputation for being courteous. We ought to cultivate civility in a toxic age. Harsh attacks quickly spark defensive responses. After all, do you have a hope that transcends the circumstances of this life? People are wondering. Alexander McLaren, the great British preacher, a gloomy, melancholy, professing Christian, is a poor recommendation of his faith. If you want to adorn the doctrine of Christ, you will do it a great deal more by a bright face that speaks of a calm heart than by many more ambitious efforts. You can have your apologetics down and all sorts of Bible verses in hand, and we should. We ought to be able to make a defense for the faith that we have, but we also ought to have a spirit of joy and confidence in our great God. So the call to joy, the impact of our joy, why it's so important, Paul also touches on the threat to joy here in verse 6. Back to Philippians 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. Do not be anxious about anything. Paul points to anxiety as the enemy of joy. The KJV, the old King James, uh, translated it as be careful for nothing. Don't be full of cares, weighed down by cares, right? Pulled in different directions. The old English word for worry means to strangle. There's the imagery. It would seem that sadness or grief would be the enemy of joy, but that's certainly not the case. One can be joyful even in the midst of sorrow. Just ask Paul in prison. The real problem is anxiety, to be unduly concerned about something, to be consumed or paralyzed or hijacked in our minds by competing concerns. Of course, when we talk about this issue of worry and anxiety, we might want to ask whether it's a spiritual issue or a psychological issue, right? And the reality is it might be both. Some have some propensities toward anxiety, 
Some benefit from counseling or medications, therapy. But let's be clear that these things by themselves cannot address the core issue at the heart of our anxiety, the loss of control. Right? When we are not in control of our circumstances, uh, we often struggle, and that's a spiritual issue. Oftentimes, we're worried about things that we can't even control, right? Jesus hit on that in Matthew 6, the passage that Jeremy read for us this morning. How many of you, by your worrying, can add one hour to your life? Right? So, we tend to get going on down the road. Jesus said there, too, don't worry about tomorrow. <laughs> Each day has enough trouble of its own. We borrow trouble. We, we let our minds start going about all these scenarios, most of which will never happen. (laughs) But our minds become consumed with these many things. Martha and Mary, the sisters of Lazarus, uh, certainly model this, don't they? Mary was sitting there at the feet of Jesus, enjoying his teaching, enamored there alongside of the other disciples, Martha was making preparations for dinner. And she was distracted, overburdened by all the work that she had to do. And Jesus said to her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. Do we have any other worriers in the room other than me? This is a big one. My mind is often hijacked by concerns and worries. I don't know what it is for you. Where am I going to get the next rent payment? Am I going to pass this class? Am I going to be able to get a job when I graduate from college? (laughs) Maybe I'm troubled by the government and the culture in regards to a myriad of godless agendas, right? Everything from abortion, sexual perversion promoted by the LGBTQ movement, the blurring of God's beautifully designed gender categories, growing national debt. I don't know what's on your list, what it is that threatens to hijack your mind and your thinking I love the realism of the text, which really acknowledges that there are many things to be worried about. There are things that would tend to capture and dominate our thoughts. Jesus, in Matthew 13, told the parable of the soils. And he talked there about the cares of this world, the weeds that would choke us out. And he says those are the cares of the world. We have all of these things that are calling for our attention and they tend to choke out our life. So this is, the, this is the threat to joy that Paul unpacks here, but he doesn't leave it there. He then points to the formula for joy, how we are to counter that anxiety. 
Again, back to the text, number, uh, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So we are to counter worry and cultivate joy by rehearsing God's greatness and sovereignty over our lives. This is the antidote for anxiety. In every situation, we are to bring our concerns to God. We ask God to help us. James tells us that oftentimes we don't have because we don't ask. So we ask God But notice here that it's more than just petition or supplication or asking. That's only part of what is happening here when we come to God in prayer. The first word that Paul uses here is prayer uh, or praying, right? Do not be anxious about anything, verse 6, but in everything by prayer. That's a worship word. That is a word of adoration, It's an acknowledgement of all that God is. Uh, This is how we're taught to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who is in heaven, right? Uh, Who is on high, who is transcendent. Hallowed be your name. May your purposes be central. Uh, I'm not the center of the universe. I'm a creature. You are the creator. (laughs) Your will be done here on earth. May your kingdom come. Your authority prevail and your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. So that's part of what's happening in prayer. It's not just that I am trying to, God, please, I need you to resolve this situation. <laughs> that, that's part of what happens in prayer. My heart is so heavy over this, God, or I'm so confused, or I'm so burdened. I, I, I need you to do something here because I can't do anything. But there's also just this aspect of prayer in which I acknowledge, God, you are God. <laughs> And I'm not. And I, and I rest in your sovereignty and I praise you. And then, of course, thanksgiving. A recognition of God's faithfulness in the past. Recognizing that God has taken care of me up to this point through a lot of dark days. <laughs> And I can be confident that God's going to take care of me tomorrow. So, uh, again, part of what's happening here is that we are just bringing our problems into the light of God's sovereignty. Too often, and Ed Welch wrote about this in a little book some years ago, when people are big and God is small. (laughs) Our problems seem so massive and God is relinquished to the periphery and, and in prayer we bring God back into the picture to reorient the chaos of our lives, to bring it into perspective. So this is put forward as the, the formula for joy. Uh, this is pothole season in our great state. And um, you might find if you hit enough of those little potholes or if you hit just the right one that, you know, about absorbs your car, right? 
you might find that you need to have your steering aligned. Right? It's, it's pulling to one side or the other. You get enough of those, those shocks, you need an alignment. And this is part of what's happening when we pray. We're not talking just about the power of positive thinking. We're talking about a solid confidence in the sovereignty of God. And it requires a regular discipline because the potholes keep coming, right? Every time we turn around, there's something new that's jarring our thinking, some new discouraging circumstance. We need to consistently come back to reorient our thinking. So I'm facing a test, and I'm afraid that I'm going to fail the test, right, students? Maybe as I unpack that, what I'm really afraid of is that my friends will think I'm stupid if I don't pass the test. So I bring this to the Lord, and God, you know my heart. You, you know the fears that are going on in me right now. You know that I'd rather not go and take this test. But God, I also know that you're sovereign over all things, and I pray that you'd help me to do my best, that you'd give me clear thinking, and I leave the results in your hand. And I recognize that my standing before you doesn't change regardless of how I do on the test. You know, this is part of what happens when we pray. We just bring things into proper perspective. This is the formula. Finally, Paul addresses the payoff uh, in verse 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. If we bring our concerns to God, he has promised to extend his peace. God's peace here is likened to a warrior. It's an interesting image, right? A warrior that will guard our hearts and our minds. Certainly a notion that would have resonated with these believers in Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony with special protection by the Roman Empire, special status. There was a Roman garrison stationed in the city to protect the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, God says that he will extend the warrior of his peace to guard our hearts and our minds. And then, of course, there's that little expression that God's peace surpasses all understanding. Understanding here referring to the faculty of intellectual perception. So God's peace is supra-rational. It's above our ability to understand. We might even say that God's peace is countercultural or counterintuitive rather it doesn't necessarily align with our ways of thinking our culture would want to suggest that financial security is the antidote to worry if you just have enough money you'll never worry about your finances again right everything will be great vaccination is the antidote to worry if you just have the vaccination then you will not have to, to worry anymore. A, a clear health diagnosis, right? From cancer, a clean scan 
oh, if I just had that, I wouldn't worry. Paul is saying here, don't look for peace in your circumstances. You will certainly be disappointed. God's peace is the only true antidote to worry. Years ago, our family enjoyed watching The Biggest Loser. Go ahead and judge us if you must. But, uh, of course, all these people trying to lose weight, and they each had a trainer, each group, right? It was a bit of a contest, and Bob, one of the trainers, uh, on several occasions implemented what I would call a Sabbath principle. He didn't call it that. But uh, they have these strict diets, and they're doing all their exercises, and um, he would actually give them one day out of the week in which the diet rules were thrown out the window. Now, that doesn't seem very smart, right, to give a bunch of overweight people free reign at the buffet one day a week when you're trying to compete in a contest, and yet his teams did pretty well. <laughs> it's a bit counterintuitive, but... Come to find out, God did not make us to uh, go nonstop seven days a week. <laughs> and I think it works in the realm of work. You'll accomplish more if you work six days and rest on one day of the week than you will by working seven days straight. God hasn't made you to work seven days straight. It's the guy in the, in, the, in the forest using his axe, but if he stops periodically and takes a break and sharpens the axe, he's going to get more done. It's a bit counterintuitive, but I think Paul's saying something here in a similar way. We're looking for peace. We're looking for, for, for joy in all of these places, but our joy only comes from, our true joy only comes from God. God made you, and he knows how to deal with your anxiety better than you do. And so we're called to take our burdens to him and his peace will guard our hearts if i were to summarize this text this morning it would be this calm your restless heart by focusing or revisiting or remembering the sovereignty of god we must silence the clamor of restless thoughts by keeping our minds ever on God. I'm going to invite you to stand with me. We're going to pronounce a benediction here out of Romans 15, and we'll respond in song this morning. Romans 15, 13, I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. <laughs> 